Welcome to episode Lucky 113 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. <clears throat> Let's get started with my first topic. There was big news with Mavenir this past week on two fronts. One, um, an announcement that a significant layoff uh, has occurred with its marketing team. We actually know a gentleman, um, uh, unfortunately, that was a part of that. Um, but also, there was news that followed that around uh, Mavenir securing a public credit facility. So I want to talk about that. And you know, the first thought that came to my mind is their trouble in open RAN land. Uh, there was similar news from Parallel Wireless. They're a competitor. Uh, they had a significant layoff as well. I mean, honestly, bud, I'm not surprised to see this because Open RAN has been, you know, like this big feeding frenzy. A lot of companies have uh, tried to jump on that bandwagon, drive uh, revenue off of that. We've talked about this in the past. I mean, the reality is that um, Open RAN, you know, RAN in general for 5G was locked years ago. Um, and so really what we're seeing with, with, uh, with Open RAN, it's really going to be in those greenfield deployments. It's going to be the dishes, the rockatons. Uh, the reliances in India. And so I'm not surprised to see this. Now, also, Mavenir apparently grew very rapidly from uh, 20 to 22. They doubled the number of employees. So, you know, and everyone's been very, very bullish on, on Up and Around. But, you know, from my perspective, it looks like, you know, Mavenir just grew too quickly. Revenue didn't keep up with it. <clears throat> it's no secret that they had planned an IPO during the pandemic. That was shelved for, for obvious reasons. But what's interesting about this credit facility, it's a $95 million credit facility. It is a public credit facility. So Mavenir is a private company and they've relied on uh, their venture capital investors to invest. And so this doesn't look very good because what it's, what it's telling the market is that the venture capitalists aren't willing to put more of their money into, into Mavenir. So Mavenir's had to go out and secure that credit facility. Now Mavenir, they're not going away anytime soon. Uh, they've got a significant footprint in other businesses. They're also a part of uh, the whole private cellular network ecosystem as well. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting and it's sort of, could it be a portent, you know, uh, with respect to the monetization opportunity for Open RAN in, in the short term? What, what do you think? I, I think that when you look at what's going on in the market, um, I think a lot of these companies, including Mavenir, um, probably... Uh, you know, grew too fast and anticipated the market um, too early. Uh, I think we've seen this happen. I mean, I, I've covered a lot of emerging industries, um, including like um, XR. And I've seen a lot of companies um, come and go. And what happens is um, they will, you know, uh, grow too fast and the market's not ready for them yet. Yeah. And um, sometimes that results in a company having to let go a lot of people. Other times it means the company completely shuts down and other times it means they get, they get bought up. So yeah. um, it, it's a question of, 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 you know, how they're going to right size their business um, and their burn um, and whether or not they can sign customers early enough to big enough deals to sustain a company long term. And I apologize I guess my shirt is too close to the color green because I almost <laughs> you're blending in. Um, if you want to see that, you can watch the uh, the video mm -hmm. version of the podcast. Yeah, no, great insights, bud. 
Well, let's let's move to your first topic, and we're going to talk a little bit about MediaTek this week. But you want to talk about the Motorola Edge 5G phone and why that's significant for MediaTek? Yeah, so it's a twofer. Um, the first part is that the Motorola Edge 5G phone um, is the first phone in the world to ship with a MediaTek Dimensity 1050. And the reason why the MediaTek Dimensity 1050 is important is because it's MediaTek's first millimeter wave SOC. Um, and it's actually a modified uh, you know, version of their MediaTek uh, Dimensity 1000 series with a uh, custom 5G modem that does millimeter wave. The first uh, carrier to carry it will be actually T-Mobile, mm -hmm. which is funny because they don't really do much millimeter wave. Um, but other other carriers like AT&T and Verizon will come later. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, uh, they also announced the T830, um, which is a, um, a a 5G chip specifically architected for uh, FWA and MiFi Wi-Fi hotspots that are portable. Yeah. Um, and those will be paired with MediaTek's Wi-Fi 7 chipsets. So this will be something that comes to market next year. But it'll be really interesting because MediaTek already has a lot of design wins in the 5G fixed wireless space today. And they're doing very well in that. Um, and, and the GSA, we've talked about this before, uh, is expecting this year to double last year and next year to double this year in terms of shipped units. So this is a very good looking business for MediaTek. Um, and, you know, 5G fixed wireless is clearly making an impact for companies like T-Mobile and Verizon, as well as their competitors like Charter and Comcast. Right. You know, from my perspective, uh, 5G fixed wireless access has become the first killer use case. Uh, like you mentioned, T-Mobile over a million subs. Uh, Verizon's building that business pretty, uh, pretty substantially as well. And this is a great way for MediaTek to do exactly what Qualcomm has done, moving from end device into infrastructure. Granted, uh, Qualcomm's a lot more mature in that respect. They're in many more you know, verticals, but this is a great opportunity for MediaTek with FWA to get into those, those CPEs and, and that sort of thing and participate in the infrastructure space. And I think we'll see more from them. You and I were in Phoenix for an analyst event a few months ago and um, they also have uh, designs and plans to go attack the IoT space as well. So, I think you know we'll we'll hear we'll be hearing a lot from MediaTek as they as they move into infrastructure. But um, that's a nice segue to my second topic this week. I want to talk about MediaTek as well. And I caught this news. So, apparently, uh, MediaTek in a lab environment powered a smartphone with a 5G non-terrestrial network. And you know I started thinking, what could this mean for connectivity? Um, and, you know, from my perspective, you know, potentially what this does is, and again, let me, let me speak to the specific solution. So the, the MediaTek uh, solution is the NR NTN enabled test chip, which is 3GPP compliant to release 17. And so what, what they believe, and you're going to talk in a moment um, on, about your second topic around on the space and AST mobile, how they potentially might leverage this, but what this could mean is uh, it could it could participate and be one of those elements in bridging the digital divide in those areas that have been underserved by connectivity. But would love to get your input. Yeah, I caught this as well. This actually happened last week while I was uh, in New York, or actually last week, this week. Lo losing track of what day of the week it is. <laughs> um, this happened this week while I was in New York with MediaTek um, and a bunch of journalists 
for their uh, announcements. And um, yeah, this is a release 17 feature. Um, this is something that a lot of you know companies in this space are working on. This was a uh, an a, a partnership with Roden Schwartz, who was a test equipment company, um, and they were uh, essentially testing the ability to show that they are five G NTN, um, you know, capable, and that they are working to enable this capability um, in their devices down the road. Um, and I, I think right now, you know, th there's there's still a lot of early developments happening. I think you and I talked about um, not too long ago, Qualcomm and Ericsson and Talis doing right. something similar. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of developments going on and I know there's a lot of R&D in this space. Um, and I think it just kind of, you know, I don't necessarily think it's a need to have for a lot of companies, but there are some applications where um, it's a very much a want to have to make 5G a more viable opportunity. And yeah. I think you know, the NTN getting wound into 5G just helps to um, demonstrate the breadth of 5G and that it's very much not just an enhanced mobile broadband anymore. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, MediaTek is a really important player in the semiconductor space. And it's important that they have this capability to um, offer competition to companies like Qualcomm. Yeah, you know, I, I've I've said this a million times on our podcast. You know, from my perspective, competition breeds innovation. So, and that's a nice segue to your second topic. And so, the two companies that could potentially um, leverage what MediaTek is doing here is on the space and AST Space Mobile. And so, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, OmniSpace, which we've also talked about before, um, wants to compete with AST Space Mobile, which we've also talked about before. Mm -hmm. um, and, and basically they are, um, you know, making a bunch of announcements, um, talking about how, you know, they now have announced a partnership with an operator in the Philippines called Smart. Um, their approach is a bit more standards-based is what, what, what they're calling. Um, yeah. Omnispace wants to be based on, you know, the 3GPP's release 17 NTN standards. Yeah. Um, they've already launched two satellites. Uh, and they've already raised $140 million. So they're very much on their way to making this a possibility. Um, you know, they're really working to make this a, a viable option for, for, for the industry. Um, and I think there's absolutely a possibility that this could be, um, you know, something that, that ends up being a competitor to LEO mm -hmm. um, for satellite to enable 5G. Because if you have satellite as a component carrier, on your, you know, mobile device, um, that just gives you another opportunity to choose the right connectivity for the situation. Yeah. Um, and I don't think you will always want to have, a, you know, satellite. I think if you're indoors, yeah. you probably yeah. want to turn that off. Yeah. Um, but if you're outdoors and you're, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, satellite sounds like a great idea. So mm -hmm. um, I think OmniSpace <clears throat> is an interesting company because they they're they're taking a very standards approach. Um, which AST Space Mobile is much more of a, you know, um, you know, their own internal yeah. um, non-standard um, applications that are, you know, proprietary. And I, I, from my experience, you know, the reason why 5G is what it is today is because so many companies agreed that, you know, the 3GPP standards-based approach is the best for the industry. Yeah. And it happened at just the right time with 4G LTE 
eventually winning out over WiMAX because now everybody's on the same standard with 5G. And even in the early days of 5G, we had, you know, 5G TF. Um, it, it wasn't perfect, but now if everybody agrees on the same standard, interoperability is, is a huge factor. And I think with satellite, it's going to just be another thing that we absolutely want to have. So I think OmniSpace is definitely going in the right direction here. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, the standards approach is the right way. You know, you mentioned interoperability, but more importantly, it's just sort of chicken and egg. So, you know, um, a device manufacturer is always going to design uh, based on an industry standard first uh, versus, you know, a proprietary design second. You know, and there's a parallel to like when you look at, you know, autonomous, you know, driving capabilities and what Tesla is doing, which is very proprietary and unique versus leveraging the industry standard with, with LiDAR and, you know, and all of that. And so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I completely agree with you. Uh, taking a standards-based approach is, is definitely the, the right way to go. But let's, uh, let's hit my third and final topic this week before we hit yours. And I want to talk a little bit about AT&T. And there was an announcement this week by Andre Frusch, who is their outgoing CTO. Uh, uh, my friend, Igal Ibez, uh, is going to be taking over for what Andre was doing. Congratulations, Igal, if you're listening or watching today. But the update was around white box. And so this is a journey that AT&T has been on for several years. But, but Andre made the announcement, maybe this was his, one of his swan songs as he's leaving, is that by the end of the year, over half of its backbone traffic will be running on white box switches. And um, this is something that the company has been very, very focused on. AT&T has been very, very participant in um, open source networking. They've been a, a part of the Linux Foundation networking group. They participate in several open source um, initiatives um, within the Linux Foundation. And so from my perspective, doing this allows them to be more flexible in deploying um, software-defined networking tool sets and that sort of thing. And the reality is at the end of the day, uh, all of this, and I've been a big proponent of open source networking, because of the upstream and downstream you know, number of eyes that are on things, um, releases can happen quicker. They're, they're vetted more carefully from a security standpoint. You've got a lot of different folks upstream and downstream uh, you know, you know, finding bugs and, and that sort of thing. And at the end of the day, it has the opportunity to deliver extreme agility and speed, potentially CapEx and OpEx savings as well. So um, I, 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 I was surprised that, you know, they'll have half of their, uh, their backbone traffic, you know, there by the end of the year. I think they're probably well ahead on their several year plan, but would love to get your insights. Yeah, I saw this and I think, you know, it's definitely one of those things where um, I think this has been a long time coming. Um, yeah. I think AT&T has been making a lot of investments um, in software, uh, which is why I think I was also surprised that they haven't been really concrete on their um, their standalone, you right. know, deployment, because I think they've been, you know, I was always expecting them to be the first to come to market with standalone. But I think that also may just be a component of, you know, what their network looks like in the maturity of their 5G network. Yeah. Um, but in general, I think this is a positive thing for AT&T because ultimately it gives them much better supplier diversity. Yeah. Um, and I think that over time, uh, they will be able to keep this um, software stack, you know, maturing. And um, I think it will save them money in the long term in terms of, um, you know, the cost of hardware and maintaining it and 
keeping up times, you know, reasonable. Yeah. yeah. I also believe there are two other things that I was thinking about here. So one, this probably smooths their, their path to uh, moving towards virtualized RAN. I mean, they're already doing that. Um, when, when you get into to VRAN, you're also getting into network slicing. You and I have talked about network slicing. That's really going to unlock a lot of operator monetization when you can deliver you know, an SLA based on throughput or latency and that sort of thing. And then also, I think that this provides a nice blueprint for smaller operators that are struggling with you know, the billions of euros, the billions of dollars that it takes to deploy a 5G network. Um, this provides, you know, sort of, you know, sort of in the guise of open RAN, a very uh, capex and opex um, effective solution. But uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's interesting to see it all unfold. But let's move to your third and final topic. And we've been talking about the recent 2.5 gigahertz auction, and you want to provide a wrap up. Yeah, so we're kind of nearing the end of this auction. We're in round 41, which means 347 billion dollars worth of. $347 million. Yeah, that, you said billion. I was like, okay, it just eclipsed C-band. <laughs> the word million and bids uh, ended up uh, interacting with each other and became That's billion. right. Um, so $347 million in bids, um, which are, is for about 8,000 licenses. Um, and of those 8,000 licenses, um, 7,500 have already been settled, which means that there's no more... Um, bidding on those, um, which means that there's only about 300 licenses left huh. to uh, bid on that are being com competed for. Mm -hmm. um, so we're almost done. Uh, and uh, I'm going to say that T-Mobile is probably going to acquire 80 or 90% of these. Yeah. Um, and I think that eventually what will happen is the ones that didn't win, they'll have to pick up later on, um, which is not a surprise. Um, I just, you know, some companies are going to make some money, more money on this. I don't really see anybody else really trying to take advantage of this because 2.5 is, is, is a band that you need to have infrastructure in place to take advantage of. Yeah. Um, but I could see some companies or some counties for, for one reason or another, having it, um, in, a, in one or two counties, I just don't see it being a nationwide thing for anyone other than T-Mobile. Um, and a good example of that is, you know, they just bought $3.5 billion worth of the 600 megahertz, um, uh, you know, spectrum that they didn't acquire the first time. So yeah. I, I just think this is all going to eventually end up at T-Mobile, whether it happens today or it happens in a few years. Um, but I think this is going to really shore up a lot of their 2.5 gigahertz um, spectrum, and it's going to improve yeah. <clears throat> um, overall available spectrum to them and their customers for things like FWA, which I think is why um, FCC even did this auction, because I think they want to ensure that T-Mobile is able to execute on its strategy for uh, deploying FWA, 5G, with yeah. that they need to, to make it a viable thing. Because you know we're seeing FWA being a possibility as a result of there being enough spectrum available. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, I agree. And I'm not surprised that T-Mobile was a big winner. I mean, <laughs> AT&T and Verizon are still digesting um, the checkbook on C-band and they're focused on deploying those assets. And we've talked about AT&T and um, 110 yeah. Spectrum Max. Um, the only thing I'll say is um, until the auction is complete, uh, we won't actually know who the winning bidders are, but 
it's almost a shoe in that that T-Mobile yeah. will be the one who takes the majority of this. Yeah, that's that's our crystal ball there. Well, hey, buddy, another great podcast this week. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights for a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whaletown Tech and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.